The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. Radio. This is a special St. Valentine's Day broadcast. Um, I am joined today uh, with my co-host, Dr. Piers Hugill. I am Stephen Heiner, your host, and we are joined by His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan, who's been our guest many times on this show. Thank you for joining us, Your Excellency. Oh, you're very welcome, Stephen. Um, His Excellency was ordained a priest of Jesus Christ by Archbishop Marcel Lefebvre on the 29th of June, 1976, not that long ago, and was consecrated a bishop on November 30th, 1993. So is this the 10th, um, uh, 20th year? So this this uh, fall, have the, the 20th anniversary, it does go quickly, too. My goodness. Well, ad multos anos. Thank you. I imagine married people would say the same thing. <laughs> and of course, the symbolism, you know, the, the idea is the bishop being married to the church and the wearing of the ring uh, as that, that that being one of the symbolisms of the of the of the, of the, of the episcopal state you know. absolutely absolutely uh, well, for those of you who are tuning into Restoration Radio for the first time, we are a show dedicated to discussing history, literature, philosophy, art, and of course, theology and doctrine from a traditional Catholic viewpoint. Um, Restoration Radio is underwritten by True Restoration Press, which has books for sale at truerestorationpress.com and streaming videos for download at truerestorationmedia.com. While some of our costs are underwritten by True Restoration Press, we are genuinely dependent on donations from our many listeners who appreciate what we are attempting to do with the Apostolate. If you'd like to support our efforts, please donate via PayPal at using truerestoration at gmail.com. We will be, do, we will be taking phone calls uh, today and questions via Twitter, but we won't be getting to those for the first, few, first 15 minutes of the show or so. We are going to um, talk with His Excellency a bit more about... St. Valentine's Day, and, and Your Excellency, I, I told you before the show started that, uh, that if there were to be a theme song for the modern world celebration of Valentine's Day, Drop the Saint, uh, mm-hmm. it would be the Beatles' All You Need Is Love. I think that would be a very fitting and appropriate one, certainly. And then, as I mentioned to you, there's I, somehow, someplace I came across the lyrics of some country-western 
tune whose refrain is looking for love in all the wrong places. And I maintain that would make a good second. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. But we're not going to disedify our listeners by playing (laughs) either of those tunes, however. (laughs) Because we are traditional Catholics, so we're going to be good. And and to that end, Your Excellency, let's... So we know what the modern-day Valentine celebration is, and I, I, we'll come back to that. But let's find out the namesake for today. Can you tell us a little bit about his story and, and how it became so popularized? Oh, yes, certainly. In fact, I'd like to tell you a lot about his story. What an interesting saint, and what an interesting story that is. If I could begin with um, a little note. We're, of course, now on this, in the second day of Lent. Someone asked me just before Lent, what I did special during Lent. And I was a little taken aback at the moment, but <clears throat> uh, because uh, well, one tries to just do everything that one's supposed to do, and that's already plenty. But um, one thing that I do like to do in my spiritual reading, meditation, and then uh, sermon preparation is to study the Lenten Mass of the day in connection with the Lenten Saint of the day. I always find that fascinating, and I think there's some element of the Holy Ghost and that the, the divine providence is some kind of a link between those two those two masses. On most Lenten days, the priest has his option: he can either read the Mass of the Feria or the Mass of the Saint. Except on very great feast days when the Mass of the Saint is um, obligatory. Today, for example, I found this to be so interesting. Um, it's a healing Mass that we have the ancient the ancient Mass of this Ferial Day in Lent. Ezekias is healed in the epistle because he prays so devoutly, and the servant of the centurion in the gospel is healed by our Lord himself at Capernaum. Well, of all things, and Cardinal Schuster, one of the great liturgical writers of the early 20th century, insists on this. Of all things, uh, St. Valentine was not only a priest, but he was also medicus. He was also a doctor. And that enters into a little bit about uh, about his story that I'll tell you in a moment. The other interesting thing I found is that, you know, for all of the ancient masses in the Roman Missal, there's what's called a stational church, where in the old days the, uh, the church would gather in a procession after having chanted on the way the litany of the saints. Well, today's stational saint is St. George in Velabro, in the Golden Vale, it's called. Well, now St. George the Palestinian knight and patron saint of soldiers of Russia and of England. St. George um, is honored in Catalonia. I discovered this just in my research for the program as a sort of uh, Catalonian Valentine, if you will. So instead of praying to St. Valentine and putting these things under his patronage, they put them under the patronage of St. George, which is interesting but probably neither here nor there. So back to the saint, if I may, I'll tell a little bit about what I've been able to discover about St. Valentine. He was a priest in Rome who lived and died in the 3rd century. At around the same time, and just about 60 miles away, there was a bishop, the Bishop of Terni, of the same name, who himself was also a martyr. They're commemorated on the same day in the Roman martyrology, and that's afforded, oh, they say sometimes it's afforded some some confusion. It seems that he was associated in his apostolic uh, work with that wonderful holy family who came over from modern-day Iran, ancient Persia, to Rome 
to take care of the needs of the Christians in prison and then to make sure that their relics received a, a, a proper burial. Uh, Saints Marius, Martha, Audifax, and Abacum. And their feast day comes in in um, January. And it's those kinds of saints that are, are to be found in the small print, if you will, of the Roman Missal, but we mustn't forget them. It touches a little bit upon today's theme, where eventually we hope to end up talking about marriage and family life. And here they were, uh, a true holy family, all dedicated together, mom and dad and the two boys, to, to doing this wonderful work of the, uh, the corporal, corporal works of mercy. He seems to have been part of the group. And because of that, he was arrested and thrown into prison. There was some kind of a trial. Uh, Father Thurston, who, is, um, who did his own, an English Jesuit, he was a little bit on the modernist side, I think, but um, he did his own edition of the Lives of the Saints, Alban Butler's celebrated Lives of the Saints. Father Thurston says, he's rather excited about it, that there, there was a, a council of Rome around that time called Furiosus Placidus, and this uh, Furiosus Placidus is mentioned in the in the legend or the tale of Saint um, Saint Valentine, and much to the delight of anybody who's one of these strict historians, there is some independent secular evidence that the man existed. That always that always gets the modernists excited. And if they don't find something like that, they dismiss the whole story or legend of a saint. So he, there was some kind of a trial. He was put into prison. Asterius is supposed to have been the name of his jailer, uh, and he healed the the daughter of the jailer, uh, Julia. She was blind. He restored her sight. Because of that, the whole family, and as with today's Lenten Gospel, the family includes the servants. That's like the Roman idea of familia. So the whole family, over 20 people, were baptized. And because of that, with the Roman authorities, that sealed our saint's fate, and he was uh, beheaded, uh, martyred with a sword. Then he had a basilica built to hold his relics in an interesting place. And this is really part of the, the story of St. Valentine. The interesting place was this. It was on the Flaminian Way, which was the main access road into Rome, which then for the early centuries especially, the pilgrims to the eternal city would have taken. And his basilica on the Flaminian Way would have been the first properly Roman church they would have entered into. So they would go there and they would pray. And when they left, the idea is that they were impressed with St. Valentine, and they spread his devotion wherever they went. That's why that's one of the reasons why there are so many churches uh, dedicated to him. Later on, when the barbarian invasions came, the basilica, which was built about 350, was pulled down, and his relics were put into uh, the beautiful church of Santa Preside. Now they say, the Irish, don't you know, the Irish claim they have the relics of St. Valentine at Whitefriars Church in Dublin. And there's, uh, there's a, also a claim on the part of some Scots Catholics, I think in Edinburgh, and they claim that they have, uh, it's possible that they're, they're certainly probable, there's more than one St. Valentine, so it's possible that all of these uh, claims to have the relics of a St. Valentine uh, would indeed be correct. So that's the story of St. Valentine. So what's the story of Valentine's Day and uh, the business about sending out the cards and all of the rest? 
Now we come in the next part to that troublesome Roman holiday that modern historians uh, really want to limit and cage and put into a little box someplace called Lupercalia. Lupercalia is some kind of a pagan festival in honor of the pagan oh, goddess of love, Juno, Juno Februata. Um, and sometimes there's speculation that the Candlemas, the purification of Our Lady procession on February 2nd, was somehow a reparation for these sort of indecent show, public shows, parades, that sort of thing. Think Mardi Gras, and you'd, you'd, you'd get the sense of it, very much so. Um, but sometimes it's connected in, in stories with February 2nd, other times with St. Valentine. And the idea that one finds in many, many books and stories is that part of the celebration of the feast was that uh, young men should pick by, uh, utterly at random by lot the name of a young lady, and then they would um, become they would become lovers then for the next year with all of the pagan, obscene, and impure connotation to those terms such as we'd associate today. Well, that's what would happen. And that the church in turn, especially Pope Gelasius, condemned these things, but like many cultural remnants, they had a way of sticking around. There's also a tradition um, saying that the birds would mate on this day. And Chaucer alludes to that in his poetry. And, but Chaucer wouldn't have made it up. So it has to have some sort of, a, of an existing background. Which, that, that's interesting, too. So those are two possibilities. Most modern-day historians dismiss both of them as having any substance at all. But I don't know. They, 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 if they don't find the evidence that pleases them, they dismiss something as a legend. But how do you think these things got started? How do you think you could, you could find evidence of them centuries later? If not, there was not what they call in Latin a fundamentum in re. There's some kind of a foundation in the matter or the fact of, uh, of the thing. Um, so then, uh, that's especially found in England in the 15th century. There are, there are, um, there, there are extant, uh, in effect, valentines that were sent, uh, uh, some kind of a message proposing not lewd or pagan love, but proposing marriage on St. Valentine's Day and the reference to being my valentine. It goes from the uh, nobility and the aristocracy of England and France down down a, a, a little bit lower than that. But that's where we find the, um, the um, historical uh, evidence of the sending of Valentines, and then from then on, it just uh, it just prospered and and continued. I think you'd certainly have to say that. And somehow, with time, it morphed into the modern day Valentine's card with the lace and the cupid and the heart and uh, so forth. Um, in the 16th century, Saint Francis de Sales, and again, he wouldn't. He, he would have come into a tradition that was already pretty vibrant. St. Francis de Sales, being a good and a pious bishop, tried to make this, enforce the substitution of saints' names for Valentine's, uh, the drawing of names again, that same idea, centuries later, somehow showing up in Savoy, in one corner of what is today France. Interesting. Well, he, he, he tried to do that. 
I think at one point St. Francis de Sales said as long as it was done in a chaste way and no one was left out and it was just sort of fun, that would be okay, which is, after all, basically his idea about going to dances. And then um, at the same time, he did propose his own Christian equivalent, the drawing of, of saints' names, and that saint then would go with you. The idea of the drawing of the names, of course, is because in February you were at the end of the year in pagan Rome because the new year began in March, as the new year began until the Gregorian reform of the calendar in the 16th century. So the idea was that your lover or your saint would go with you all throughout uh, the coming uh, new year. Well, Stephen, you've been discreetly quiet. How am I doing? <laughs> oh, excellent. I'm, I'm enjoying, just like our listeners are, uh, that the history. And is, uh, when you talked about getting the card, um, is it true that the, the legend I read was that this was the note that St. Valentine penned to uh, the daughter of the jailer who he had uh, helped, uh, oh, the family I'm glad he had helped, and he said, he said, from your Valentine, I think, was... Right. I'm he probably didn't put in saint. <laughs> yeah, probably he didn't put in saint, you know, out of humility. <laughs> I tend to think that that part of the story is what they call a hallmark moment. Uh, that <laughs> sort of sounds like uh, American marketing technique at work. Um, no. Uh, in fact, there, there's a whole sub-story that, that that should thank you that should indeed be mentioned about this this correspondence in your Valentine. No, I don't think so, not at all. Then the other sub story is this that um the Emperor Claudius had forbidden the soldiers of the Roman army of the Imperial Army to marry. And that he, Valentine, vindicated the right of the soldiers to marry, and because he married a couple he was therefore thrown into prison, and then he wrote his note to somebody, maybe somebody whom, whose marriage he was going to perform, uh, your Valentine. And that's uh, equally false. Although there is uh, uh, an earlier pope, actually a far earlier pope, uh, one of our pope martyrs throughout the year, who did vindicate the right of the church for marriage, and to, uh, in other words, that Christians had a right amongst themselves to marry, and it would be according to the law of Christ and not according to the law of Caesar. Uh, that's, that's an interesting example of how, from the second century on, certainly, the popes vindicated the church's rights. You know, the Roman idea, I know, Vobis esse non licet is not permitted for you people to even exist. And the, uh, the church answers, well, yes, it is, and we're going to do this and this and this. Um, part of the, the right of the church was to determine that a freeman could marry a slave as long as they were both Christian. And for the Romans, that would be unthinkable. And that was part of the um, part of the innovation on the part of the church. But that's not authentically, I don't think at all, connected with the, uh, the St. Valentine story. This is the, um, this, oh, excuse me. Sorry, no, I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> to uh, I'm, I'm speaking in terms of the church. Um, right. Obviously, certain saints are, are given the patronage over some things, and I'm wondering to what degree the the church has acquiesced with the view of Saint Valentine being uh, associated with um, couples, so to speak. In the little note that I'm reading there, it, it suggests that Saint Valentine is, at least in some semi-formal way, considered a patron of uh, betrothed couples and uh, happy yeah, marriages. 
in a semi-formal way, he's the patron saint of um, of courtship. I think you could say that very firmly. But um, it has never been acknowledged. You know, like Our Lady of Loretto, one of the modern popes declaring her to be the patroness of those who travel by air. Uh, no, there, I don't. As far as I know, there has never been anything about that. Uh, it's it mm. always goes back to, but it's interesting. It always goes back mm. to this ancient idea of the choosing of mate, somehow some form of courtship between men and women, and that this took place on the feast day of the martyr. St. Valentine, so therefore it takes his name, even though there was not necessarily any connection between the two. It's a bit like um, until, until modern times, in, in many countries and Catholic cultures, uh, a baby would be named according to the saint of the day. If he's a saint on the calendar, well, there you have it. That's the baby's name. They didn't go to the Internet, as modern couples do, and sort of ooh and on ah and, and discuss and maybe even argue about the name of the baby. It would just be who's ever on the calendar. And I, I'm thinking that sometimes even the Pope, would some, or the, excuse me, the, the parish priest, would, 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 would do the same thing. So it's that strong influence of the Catholic calendar upon culture. And that's one thing I wanted to emphasize, too. What a dastardly attack was made by the modernists under Paul VI, 1969, when the new or the Novus Ordo calendar was published. Um, here you have this lovely, strong, vibrant, attractive, and full of possibility link between modern culture and Catholic culture and history and spirituality. And those idiots abolish it, and they establish instead St. Cyril and Methodius, who are great saints for the Slavs. Nothing against any Slavs that you know. But uh, St. Valentine? Saint, talk about the church being relevant. I mean, what a, po- what a possibility to be discussing each year all of these things. It's, it could simply be a seeming accident of history, but as we know from the divine providence, there are no accidents of history, that this saint is, the, as you would say, the semi-formal um, acknowledged patron saint of courtship and that has so much to say to modern culture today and how sad it is to see that cut off in the name of this uh, cold modernistic uh, historicism it's interesting in the same note we find, I, I read that St. Valentine is also a patron saint for beekeepers and is, is invoked against fainting plague and epilepsy so obviously he has a very complex uh, Yes, the, the, the saints generally, the, the saint, any saint that's loved and to whom there is a strong devotion down the centuries, he, he develops all sorts of interesting patronage, just sort of like on the side. So uh, they do keep hmm. beekeeper. Would that be the, 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 the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune? Maybe. Mm, I think you might have the wrong. <laughs> the wrong <laughs> poet there. Well, I guess it would have to be. It would have to be the stings and arrows. The, uh, the bee so. stings and the arrows from Cupid, perhaps. Yes, possibly yeah. so. Yeah, hmm. that's interesting. That's interesting. But the the business uh, he could also be, indeed, a patron saint of the sick and a patron saint of doctors, because of his name itself. Not only because he was a physician, but also hmm. because of his name. Uh, Valentinus comes from the Latin "valio valere" to be well. 
the Romans have sung the children at Mass today. The Romans would start their letters with, you know, the initials for si vales bene est valeo. If you're doing well, that's good. I'm doing well, too. Um, so he's a patron saint of being well. Uh, and then another meaning or reading of, of valere would be to be strong. Um, and then that all of that would certainly play into the idea of healthy, proper understanding of love, of courtship and uh, the vocation to marriage for, for, for Christian culture today. That, that word, uh, courtship, seems to be absolutely uh, central in your excellency because it's the, the one word or the one idea which is almost absolutely lacking in modern discussions of love and any kind of coupling, as it were. Yes, that's right. It is. In fact, when courtship is used, unfortunately, it's often in in America used um, in a sort of a conservative Protestant or fundamentalistic concept, which is unfortunate because most Catholics, I'm afraid, have lost the sense of it. Uh, and we we allow our children, and I think in traditional Catholic parishes, communities, we allow our children to follow essentially the the some modern version of the Lupercalia, some really pagan and fairly obscene occasion of sin or sin-ridden road, which somehow is supposed to lead to the altar when you get through all the flower girls and the bridesmaids and everything. You finally get the bride and you're at the altar. And all of a sudden, this which has been so sinful and worldly is supposed to become holy. So the word courtship is indeed very important. With, with with a proper understanding of what it is. And then we, we have, I think we oppose the idea of courtship to the modern concept of dating. So you know, today, you know, a, a teenager would consider it to be his God-given right to date, sometimes starting in high school, adolescence. And then when you date for a while, <clears throat> then the thing to do is a bit like the Lupercalian drawing of names, then you have to go steady. He has to be with one with one person then, and it's understood then that you would sin with that one individual uh, for, uh, they would be in effect sexual partners, for, for as long as that um, fragile relationship endures. Then, of course, it breaks apart, and then there's a tragedy and tears and uh, anger and sadness, and then, and then the couple recouple with somebody else. That's sort of the classic. I think that's that's a classic way of a uh, classic way that leads to the altar for an, an American culture. And unfortunately, very often our traditional Catholics are not too different from that. Um, so I would contrast that with the idea of courtship. And the idea of courtship is that when a young person feels called, my God, to the married state, then he begins keeping company with the opposite sex. Um, uh, and is looking now he's actively looking for uh, a possible marriage partner so it's not done as for entertainment it's not done out of sexual interest uh it's not done to keep up with everybody else in school it's done to fulfill god's will that god calls me to the married state so therefore i'm going to look for a partner and i'll pray and then i pray to find a partner with whom i agree on, because it's a question of sharing a life and a partnership on, on all these important issues. Um, so it's not... And then then the, then the idea of courtship, too, that sort of entails something quaint, pure, and old-fashioned. 
that you would see that a boy would see a girl, for example, at her parents' home, and they would do things together in public, and uh, it would be sort of it would be restrained, and you would cut off many of the occasions of sin, and it would be almost sort of more of a family approach because, after all, that's the point of marriage is to have a family and and the joining together of families in Christ. So those are all. I think those are all concepts of of modern courtship that are very different from the um from the the modern american idea of dating as you're describing that, Your Excellency, I'm thinking of you know a Jane Austen type scene where you might ask the yeah. girl if you could walk with her to the fence. You know, that's right, uh, and that would be a big deal. That was a huge deal, and you know the family would be looking right. out the window, so don't try and. They'd all be watching. The little children would be spying <laughs> over the windowsill. You know, and the parents well, would be harumphing. Th- yeah. One of the references we always talk about when we when we talk about pre-Vatican II, post-Vatican II in our shows is that a lot of us, those of us who are born unhappily after Vatican II, don't necessarily have a context for Catholic education in in particular feasts. So, for example, when I went to Catholic school on St. Valentine's Day, we all made our little boxes. We had shoe boxes that we had decorated, mm-hmm. and we cut out a little hole in the top, and then we all went around, and we put in, of course, the thing to do was to give everybody a Valentine, even the yeah, right. the person who was a real toady. And right, uh, and exactly. it was you know it was it, it was it was I understand we're going that I think that this leads to the slippery slope you're talking about but that was our celebration. You went to an actual Catholic school. What was Saint Valentine's Day even commemorated in any way for you all at at, at that age? Oh, oh yes, there were the Valentines, and you you bought uh, paper Valentines, and you you cut them out or punched them out of the sheets they came in, and. You, we passed out valentines, but the proviso was, as you mentioned, that if you were going to give out valentines, you had to give one to everybody in the class. The sister would always insist on that. <laughs> and, and just now, uh, before the show, our school children came in, quite sweet looking, and I thought that something was up, and that it was a presentation of valentines. And so the bishop got a few, and then there were some that were made. Each student seemed to have made his own. And then there was one cute one with uh, because we have a French priest visiting us, and, of course, one of our priests, Father Lecteranda, is Finnish. And so we have Happy St. Valentine's Day in French as well as in Finnish uh, with, with, with a big heart. <laughs> mm-hmm. So all the priests, and I think Father Chicada even got two, which is pretty good for Father Chicada. So <laughs> everyone got their, and everyone got their, all the clergy got their Valentine's Day cards. And that's, um, uh, that's part of, especially in some uh, Hispanic countries, that's pretty much a part of, it's not so much um, romantic love, it's more friendship that seems to be in some countries, uh, the Spanish-speaking world, emphasized. And this idea that we grew up with, you know, with the cards for everybody, that was, uh, that, that, that was pretty much along those lines, too. So you think in that context it's it's not only, you know, charming but something commendable. Oh yes, absolutely. Because um it's sweet. It's sweet that idea that little children should be should be encouraged uh to 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 look uh, in a friendly way and also to be thoughtful of the one or two children who don't have any friends in a big class or a big school, and to befriend them. Oh, those are wonderful lessons for children to to, to learn. Oh, yeah, I, I think so. I think that, that, that that's good. And so that's how that's how I remember it. And then, then I, I suppose it was outside of Lent. Then there would be the candy and the little hearts and so forth. Mm. Yeah. 
as you say, Your Excellency, you talk about the modern notion of dating and the traditional notion of courtship, and you lament that even among the traditional Catholic faithful that there's a disconnect here. Now, part of that cognitive disconnect, I think, comes from the fact that we're surrounded by our culture, and everyone else is doing this, and there's a a huge downward pressure. I say that as, as the be single, non-consecrated in this conversation. Um, mm-hmm. Dr. Doctor Hugel's, Hugel's married, and of course you have your own arrangement with our Lord. And um, I, so you feel this enormous pressure, um, but at the same time, is there just a lack of buy-in? So even isolated from cultural pressures, if you, if you talk to the modern single, is there just a lack of buy-in? When I'm using that phrase. It's a bit commercial, but that that idea mm, I, that you said you used the word quaint earlier. That that mm-hmm. that's for that was for those times back when you'd walk mm-hmm. to the fence, and that was a big deal. That's not right. for me. I don't buy into chaperoning or any of that. Oh, I see. Why do you, why do you think that is, or or do you think that's true? If so, why do you think that is? The buy-in for courtship, as we're talking about today, or yes, or not not the single state, but the courtship rather. For courtship, um, yes. Yes. Um, well, I think as with so many things in our culture, the pagan culture, the Lupercalian element, if you will, has quite taken over the Christian element. And it's um, it's uh, the struggle that every priest is going to face when he's working with the faithful today, even in our very reduced circumstances uh, throughout the world, it's the whole idea of is my Catholicism purely cultic? That is to say, it has to do with the way I say prayers and worship on formal occasions, or is it also something cultural? Does, it, does this inform the way I live, the way I dress, what I, how I recreate, what I view as beautiful, what I view as really ugly and horrible? Or am I pretty much um, pretty much going along with the modern culture that surrounds me? That was certainly the struggle of the church in the first three centuries, and that's how the church ended up with so many martyrs, because people didn't like it when you told them they were pagans and they were all going to hell, and they were all worshiping demons, and we weren't going to have any of it. Um, and the, and the, the, the crisis always is the, uh, the terrible pull of the church and towards Catholics in any age to make their peace with the pervading culture. And so, yeah, you talk about a lot of these things and you could just look out at the congregation and you could realize there's not a lot of buy-in. No, I mean, you know, even even the basics and it's all it's almost um it's almost ritual costuming, I think. I regret it, but it is so. That is to say to get a girl or a, or a woman to come to church dressed modestly, you know, not to wear trousers or, 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 or something tight or something low-cut. Um, sometimes they won't even do that or to veil their heads. They won't even do that, not even that. They won't even dress up in, if you will, like an Amish costume for the occasion uh, because it's, it's the cultic aspect of their lives. It's just a little bit too much trouble, thank you. And then there are other, you know, the elements for girls. You know, the whole idea they have to be attractive to boys. I don't know where that comes from, but it's sure strong in our culture, and always has been. It's always been there. Uh, much less this whole idea that um, dating is for when 
you are ready. You've got the money. You've got the you you've got the maturity, and you you feel some sort of a call from God to enter into the married state to get married and start a family. Uh, no, I mean that's all. You know, so to get them not to go on dates when they're in high school, when they're in adolescence, that's that's already a, a big thing. So those are all the areas in which even our people aren't buying in, much less the other ones, because. The whole, I think the essence of the Novus Ordo is to, if they had holy water, they would sprinkle the holy water on every aspect of mod, the modern world and modern culture. And so they're certainly not going to be doing it either. So. Uh, it seems to me that uh, traditional Catholics obviously need to uh, make more of St. Valentine, given oh, the yeah. kinds of uh, difficulties that you're describing, Your Excellency, your Excellency yeah. in terms of meeting someone else. Because I think I get the impression from a lot of the uh, the traditional Catholics I know here in in England, and I think it's true of those that I know distantly in America and Canada that many young traditional Catholics find it very often almost impossible to find someone like-minded with whom they could begin courtship. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the right mentality, the, right, the, the readiness, and the maturity that you were talking about. So there seem to be to be many, many more. Uh, Catholics who are necessarily drawn to the single life outside of um, the priesthood or religious life. And yes. I wonder how... What, do you think that's true? Are there many more? Is there a special problem that they need to, uh, that we need to address? Well, sometimes it, it could very well be, appears that they, they, don't, they don't feel drawn to the single state. They, would, they, they really feel they have a vocation mm. to the married state, but just the idea of finding a partner... And, of course, that's the ultimate sign of the will of God. If God wants you to be married, well, God will enable you to find someone to whom to be married. Otherwise, it's a sign that it's not, it's not, it's not God's will. But um, that's, that, that need is what motivated uh, us a few years ago to start this traditional Catholic circle that we have, uh, this uh, Internet uh, opportunity for it's really intended for young people of, of marriage age to get to know each other, to correspond. And I'm happy to say I know of a few marriages that have taken place as a result of that. So every now and again, the clergy bestir themselves to do something like that. Years ago, we had um, St. Raphael's Singles Group that's, that, that would have meetings every summer in the Cincinnati area. And that served a similar purpose. And once again, there were a number of, of happy marriages and families now that they came as a result of it. We have an obligation, I think, to try to try to do these things. And then, even on an individual basis, oh, Father Chicada, for example, he has a bit of a reputation for being a matchmaker. <laughs> and every now and again, he'll think this person and that. And then, and sometimes, indeed, it does. It does indeed work. Um, that speaks to the speaks, I think, to the larger problem that we have of this terrible isolation. We really are sort of all cut off, even though we've all we've a zillion means of communication. But I don't don't you all feel that too that 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 you have these little little groups, and if you could get everybody to know everybody else somehow, of course that would exponentially increase the danger of divisions, fights, and squabbles. But maybe on the other hand, it would be very encouraging, and could it could actually lead to to friendships or possibly to marriages. Yeah, I think, Pierce, we're both members of Traditional Catholic Circle, aren't we? 
Yes, and I'm going right. to post yeah. a link. I'm going to post a link to that on Twitter here. Oh, I, I think it's I think it's a great idea, Your Excellency, and it's just a nice way to interact, even if there isn't necessarily a, a love connection. Uh, in that way, it's still a, it's still a great way to meet young people. You talk about that isolation we feel. Oh yeah, it's just nice yeah. to be able to connect with people um, mm-hmm. in different ways. When you you talk you talk about the our our modern isolation and and the reduced state of the church today, and I think about a conversation you and I have had before uh, when you talked. Uh, some people don't know this about you, but you started your clerical life um, as a Cistercian. Um, uh, you wanted to have the the uh, the quiet life with our Lord, and that for whatever circumstances, whatever the reasons were, our Lord decided that you weren't only going to be a secular priest, but you were going to be a bishop. Yes. And that this was, yeah. if you were to envision that for yourself, as you said, that uh, if you if we're thinking about being single or being married, you within your own state did not think that this was that was eventually what you were going to be called to. It just happened to you. And the circumstances, the state of the church in our time brought that about. In the same way, it used to be that parishes were overflowing, so there were a group of men or women of a certain age, and they would just maybe all go and hang out, and at some point someone might catch someone else's eye. Um, and right. now you might go to a, a small mission chapel, and maybe no one's over the no one's under the age of forty, perhaps, except you, and maybe a couple other people. And and this becomes much more of a question of, well, am I is is God's will for me to be single at this point, or or am I just going to have to work much harder, use things like the internet site that, that um, Father Chicago worked on, to bring people, you know, to meet someone? What 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 do you what would you recommend as a way to help someone in that position discern through that, um, especially given that the, the church has never really there's no consecration for for non-religious singles. So you know the married life has a has a blessing from the church, the religious life has a blessing from the church, but being single doesn't really have anything from the church. How that that in itself, no one goes well. That's really attractive. I want to enter a state that uh, the church doesn't have any special blessing for. No, she, she doesn't, and of course it's not considered as a vocation, sort of a lack of a vocation, if you will. But mm-hmm. um, on the other hand, uh, how often do those who, in effect, have this call from God to the single state, do they play this wonderful and very important role in other people's lives, and they can do it specifically because of their singlehood? They're not tied down to marriage or to a family, or indeed, they're not tied down to a religious order or to the priesthood. They have they have a certain freedom, and then they can, and I believe very strongly, they must give of themselves to all sorts of all sorts of good deeds, and in so doing, they they supply a real need, and they find their own joy and their own fulfillment. But you're right; it's I think that's more of a this is more of a modern thing. I don't the whole idea of the single state. I don't, I don't think it, you found it that much in the old days. Oh, every now and again you did. And you, but indeed, you come across some some saints who were like that. I mean, homo bonus is one, is one example that uh, that occurs to me. But not not really all that many. And, and usually they were at least third order or something like that, or, and maybe they would end up becoming brothers at, or entering a monastery at a certain point. But it was a different world, and that was... Um, that was a different time. But you know, as you're speaking, what I'm thinking of is um, uh, 
Well, it goes back to this idea of, uh, I don't want to be a socialist, as I say, but the idea of share the wealth. <laughs> that mm-hmm. um, And why shouldn't we, with all of our, my goodness, with all of our electronic means of communication today, why should we be satisfied with this isolation that that I think besets us? As a bishop, when I travel, I'm uh, encouraged when I see how many good priests there are who are offering a good mass and they have a good logical understanding of the crisis in the church and of Catholic doctrine. And I'm also encouraged when I see how many good young people there are, how many young marrieds there are in different countries. Um, And it has to be, it is, a strength and an encouragement to realize I'm not the only one. I'm not crazy. (laughs) I may be crazy, but at least I'm not the only one who's crazy. There are other people who share the same unchanged Catholic faith, and it's Catholic. It's worldwide. It cuts across all of these cultural, secondary cultural divisions. There are Catholics like me still throughout the world. So for a young person who's thinking about the married state, there's a lot of possibilities. So I often think, you know, boy, if we could get Bishop Sanborn's young people together with you know, our young people or the young people at some other chapel someplace, that would be a great thing. But, um, and the trad circle or things like that uh, on the on the Internet have achieved that end to a certain degree, but there's room for improvement, I would say. So I think to answer your question, I would say, yes, we need to work harder. We shouldn't be content with that. And it's an odd thing, and I wonder if it is if it isn't almost sort of a temptation of the devil, that that it's easier just to pull up our rocking chair by the fire with a cat and sort of be satisfied, <laughs> you know, with our you know our, our cozy little world as opposed to getting out there and and doing something. And I think that, well, we pretty much need to get out there and do something if we're able to. I, I wonder. Well, I mean, we're, we're talking about a, a show about love, and I wonder if. It, it might not be uh, cheeky to say that there's a potentially a lack of charity there as well. It seems to me that one of the reasons that there are so many single Catholics who are not looking to be married or haven't found a marriage partner or aren't priests or religious is that they they haven't had that will to try a vocation somewhere else. There aren't so many people going into to be just brothers or sisters, religious. No, indeed And, no, and it seems no. to me a crying shame that we need to be more people being active by a strong prayer life in religious orders, potentially. Isn't yes, it's a lack of charity, yeah. I, I agree with mm-hmm. you there, Pierce, for sure. It's a lack of charity, a lack of, of generosity, and a lack of maturity. If you know, if you mm-hmm. consider that in the times of St. Valentine or the times of Chaucer or St. Francis de Sales, uh, young people matured far, far earlier <clears throat> than they do today, and I think this is uh, an influence of American, godless American culture, this American imperium, which, like the ancient Roman, has spread itself throughout the whole world and is, in that sense, truly something wicked and contemptible. This is part of this idea. I live for myself. I live for pleasure. I live for the moment. I will make no commitment aside from, you know, what would I will enjoy. I won't even accept an invitation for two weeks from now because maybe I'll want to do something else. Maybe some, I'll keep my options open, as they say. Um, that, that goes back, well, you would say a little bit from the pulpit, yes. But that really goes back to um, how children are raised and the, uh, the Catholic formation that is given to them in the home by their parents 
And then also that idea of an example, to give of oneself, to, to be selfless, to, to seek uh, the glory of God in all things. If parents are giving that kind of an example to the children and they're growing up with that sense, it's more likely that they'll live that way too. I remember uh, in St. George's House in, in London listening to a talk of uh, Bishop Williamson and there was a group of young young people, uh, young men and young women, and he was giving his usual spiel about, you know, if you get married, you're happy for a week. <laughs> if you go into religious orders, you're happy for life. And he would, come on, girls, you know, think about a vacation. Become become a, a woman religious. Become a priest, you boys. And they were laughing because it was the idea was ludicrous to them. <laughs> The idea of, uh, and I thought that was kind of interesting. I mean, even among the the the, the most committed uh, traditional Catholics, it never even occurred to them that such a thing was possible. Mm. And it seemed to me to be obviously I, my time has passed. I was already married. I couldn't couldn't make a change. But uh, I make a was, change. it was interesting at least that reaction. Yeah, that, that you're right. That is quite an interesting reaction. Yes, mm. uh, it just well, it, spe- it speaks to the age. I'm afraid, although the the idea of happiness. Ah, you know, and, and, and seeking, <laughs> seeking after happiness, my goodness. I have to say, as a priest and as a bishop, well, like, more like as a parish priest, I would say, I have a um, profound, not respect, but veneration for the married state, which is established by a sacrament. And I think a profound realization of the sanctity and the spirit of sacrifice that's required to do it right to make it work, not to mess things up too terribly badly, you know, to save your soul, sanctify your spouse, and raise your children in the love and the fear of God. Um, And sometimes, but very often, preparing couples for marriage over the years, I think, my goodness, you know, here you have five or six years of preparation in the seminary for the priesthood, and what, there are a few talks with the priests, and you might get them to read a book or two if they're very, very devout, and that's about it. And then you fill out the forms, and there's no impediments. And then you fall to fighting about how many bridesmaids they can have for the wedding. Um, and then that, ta-da, that's, that's it. And then pretty soon, here comes the bride down the aisle. That's the wedding preparation. Uh, uh, I, and uh, you had the sense of, I've seen some books in the old days, <clears throat> and some priests, I think, use them or, or have attempted to use them in effect, uh, sort of a semester's course weekly meetings about all these different things and that's all that would all be to the to the good anything that we could do to beef it up in the way of marriage preparation i think would be important um but as they say uh the preparation for for marriage starts very very early and i i think that's something that that uh, that actually it starts when the bride and the groom are little themselves and what they see in, in their own parents' marriage, and what they see in their own faith, and their own spiritual lives. Those are all really very, very important questions. But the lack You're, of... Go ahead. I was going to ask you, uh, I want to come back to this marriage preparation question, because I have some more questions, but could we go down the, the bridesmaid detour for a moment? Um, uh, I, if, I've if, been... you're, if you're willing to walk that slippery slope, Stephen. <laughs> I, I'm going to walk slowly and in time with the music. Um, okay, it's I one step to... at a time, remember. I've been told by some priests over the years that the the idea, as we see it here in America, of these bridesmaids and this procession, is it's a very Protestant thing because they didn't have any ceremony or beautiful ornamentation 
they didn't have a priest with altar boys walking down. So they had to create their own procession in order to make the day a little less Spartan. And so you have all of these um, accoutrements over time that, is, that aren't really necessarily Catholic, that Catholics could do very well with a maid of honor and a best man uh, and not have necessarily all of these things. What, what, what do you think about that? Well, yes, and it's a cultural consideration, too. That is to say that at some point uh, in America, there were a lot of really wealthy people, nouveau riche, and they felt, as newly rich people often do, the call to celebrate in some sort of a fairly ostentatious fashion their new wealth and to make everybody realize their elevated uh, social status. So... They um, devised these different ceremonies on the, on the, as it were, the other side of the communion rail for a wedding because on the, on, the, on the clergy side, there wasn't going to be too much going on. There would just be a minister in a gown, and he would be reading the marriage service out of the Book of Common Prayer or some other Protestant prayer book. And uh, there had to be something to jazz it up. Human nature wants that. Holy Mother Church gives that and it's available and it should be used and it should be given that is to say the splendor of the, of the public worship of god and all of all these rites beautiful rites and ceremonies that surround the church uh, that surround the, the sacrament of matrimony in the catholic church that is to say the nuptial mass itself uh, after the, the the exchange of vows the rings sometimes there are local customs and then the very beautiful and profound uh, nuptial blessing that's given to to the bride on her on her wedding day and then other customs at the end like the american custom of presenting the bouquet of flowers to the uh to the virgin mary we have all of that so our point would be i think why do we need to attempt to create sort of a broadway or las vegas show with all of these gowns and everything sort of synchronized in different ways and then the constant battle about modesty, which is always lost by the church, it's understood. Um, and all this money, time, energy has to be wasted on the creation of essentially a secular show. It's gotten, we've gone downhill. People to see that this is really the point of what we often talk about on these programs, Stephen. Is people don't realize how they are affected by the prevailing culture. That's why we have to we have to. Uh, uh, go into the attic, dust off what is ours, and to say, you know, this table or this chair, this is really worth something. This is a beautiful piece of, of art. Look at this. Let's use this now. Let's not throw it away in the basement or the attic. Let's, let's bring this out. This is ours. St. Valentine, Catholic love, the Catholic concept of a wedding. This is ours, as opposed to following fashion, ephemeral fashion, the, the styles of the day. Just in about 30 years, I've noticed the, um, the strange multiplication of uh, of uh, bridesmaids, uh, and it's all really just, it's what the church would call in the old days a vulgar show or worldly pomp. If you want to have that for your wedding, of course you do, but then that's done as part of an act of the worship of God, not the, the showing of synchronized gowns and young ladies' shoulders, and even more, usually. I like to tell the bride, uh, the, the, the bride, as we're discussing the uh, 
modesty rules and everything. Look, the best surprise is no surprise. When you come and you turn the aisle to come up, uh, come up to the altar, I don't want to see anything I don't need to see. And very often, I am forced to see something I don't need to see because they feel this terrible need to go along with culture, with style, with fashion, and to show, show the flesh. Sometimes those who really want to show the flesh, we could just do without it anyways, if you know what I mean. It's not really doing anybody any good. <laughs> Certainly, it's not worth a sin, put it that way. This is where, no, it's not worth a sin. So let's just turn the page and forget that altogether. All, all uh, those are some of the things Have you ever had to might. send an altar boy back for a surplus to throw on? <laughs> uh, no, but 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 uh, Bishop Sanborn actually, uh, he he would tell brides as they as they prepared for a wedding, if your dress is immodest, I will not marry you, and you'll have to see those curtains. You'll have to wear curtains, and I know of I know of two clergymen who shall not be named who actually did that. They got the curtain, and the bride had to wear the curtain. <laughs> because it was just they they wouldn't do it they wouldn't do it uh, and uh, good for them good for them they're 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 taking the stand against Lupercalia whether or not actually there ever was a Lupercalia we live it today and it doesn't have any place in a Catholic uh, wedding ceremony or even this whole idea of vain or worldly show you know we're not people that need to show off our wealth and create ceremonies uh, like the you know this. And that's always commercialized, so like the, the marriage candle, the three lighting of candles, things like that. The whole the whole Catholic way of getting married today is really vulgar, wasteful, uh, worldly, and expensive. And, and the, the the idea, Father Manton um, is a uh, was a wonderful uh, Boston redemptorist, Irish of course preacher, and he preached for many many years in the redemptorist church in Boston for the. Uh, uh, Our Lady of Perpetual Help Novena. And in one of his sermons, which I used to consult when I was a young priest, there's some wonderful line about the idea that love could still be something sweet and gentle and, yes, pure. Well, that should inform us. We should we believe that. Love could be sweet and gentle and pure. And the way in which we marry should show that. The other thing you have to say about all of this is it's a cultural thing that in most uh, Anglophone countries, English-speaking countries, the Catholics were poor. They were immigrants, and they were poor. So therefore, they could not afford a fancy way of getting married. That was for the upper classes who were Protestants, and the Protestants had to have this ostentatious the show of wealth and, and, and social standing, and they did, but whereas Catholics couldn't. So it was not unheard of for Catholics, especially maybe if they were working class, simply to make their arrangements with the priest, and they would get married on a weekday uh, uh, on the altar. There would be a mass, an after mass, and then the bride would just wear a nice kind of a nice suit, and the, and, the, and, the, and the groom the same thing, a good suit, the best he had. Then they would go off for breakfast, and that would be that. That would be their wedding. Um, and why not? You know, as long as there's a spiritual preparation there. The idea was that there was no money to waste. We didn't have the money anyway. We just got married. And grandparents now, maybe great-grandparents that era, great-great-grandparents possibly, depending on your perspective, they, that's, that's how Catholics would be married in many countries because they were of the laboring class. They weren't too wealthy. 
and they would mm. just, they would just really get married that way, and that's good. Uh, I remember in uh, one part of Mexico uh, that um, where I visited before that it's the uh, near near the volcano outside of Mexico City, Popo. The there's one town up in the mountains, and it's a custom for the the couples who are just poor Indian field workers, basically. It's they get married at the door of the church. The priest meets them at the door of the church. I've never figured out why it's at the door of the church, but that's how it's done. That was the customary way to do it. And obviously there wasn't a whole lot of fuss, but that that was the sacrament of matrimony that would be given there. So. Yeah, and you, Your Excellency, you mentioned the mix-up with clothing for for women, the immodesty. Uh, you know, the men are so turned around. You know, they're wearing tuxedos during the daytime. You oh, know, yeah, when it's right. uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Kind of drives him nuts. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's uh, and, uh, well, that's that whole idea about just sort of uh, again to use the word a vulgar display. People don't even know right. the rules, but they they have some money and they want to throw it around, and they have this idea this would be a grand thing to do. So they go ahead and they do that, and then then. But then, parents, if I do come in white, if I come in white tie and tail, someone might think I'm a waiter. You know, that he might indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then someone is going to go into debt for years and years over this thing. Oh, and sometimes, of course, the, they're, they're still paying, the, the parents are still paying for the children's wedding, and the children have already divorced and moved on, as they like to say today. Yes. Um, for those of you who are just joining us, um, you are listening to Restoration Radio, a special St. Valentine's Day broadcast against the modern notion of Valentine's Day sans saint. Um, I am joined, um, I'm, I'm Stephen Heiner, I'm joined with my co-host Dr. Pierre Sugill and uh, His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. We're going to open up the phone lines um, for anyone who'd like to call in. Our telephone number is 949-272-9417. Again, that's 949-272-9417. And, um, and I, uh, I can also be taking questions on Twitter. Uh, if you go to at True Restoration, um, if you go to twitter.com and you search for at True Restoration, you can simply put a mention in there, put a question in. And we had a question from last night. Um, when did it all go wrong with St. Valentine's Day? And I think that's something we've already answered today, Your Excellency. Mm-hmm. Um, I, want, I want to segue a little bit into into the the married side of the possible St. Valentine's Day patronage. And mm-hmm. my question there kind of ties into what happens when you have um, your the young married people that you're talking about doing preparation for. It could be once, twice, however many times you see them for Cana classes. What is it that you, what's it that most surprises you in a bad way about meeting these young couples for the first time? Something that you feel, wow, I don't know why you don't know that about marriage or, or a misconception about what marriage is that you think should be combated and that people should be aware of. One thing that's, that that always strikes me, and it's perfectly understandable, I'm not quite sure how to get around it, is that um, it's, um, oh, it's a little bit like that scene from uh, Brideshead Revisited where the Canadian industrial magnate wants to marry the girl from uh, the, the noble Catholic family in England, 
and therefore he has to take lessons in the faith. And he's willing to agree to anything at all to achieve his end or his purpose. Uh, that's a big factor. Sometimes you get couples who have been pre-talked to, I think, or, or one party has told the other, keep your mouth shut. So they're willing to agree to anything or they sit there glum-faced. It's just, this is sort of a penance that they have to go through. And it's very hard to get the sense of, well, do you really believe? And I always insist with them, you know, you shouldn't be getting married here unless you intend to live your marriage here. That is to say, in the traditional Catholic Church and faith. Uh, that's that's something which I'd say it's un- understandable uh, because they want to make it work. And if they've come to you, they don't want to pose uh, difficulties or problems. Um, but then it's, it's a lamentable lack of... Um, expressing themselves. But then on the other hand, too, I suppose it's human nature, that uh, there, there's not a lot of communication, there's not a lot of listening, that you can, you can stress some of these themes about love, spirituality, self-sacrifice, self-forgetfulness. But uh, you know it's not, it's not going into the head. It's just, it's just, not, it's just not going in. And there are all these other influences, and they sort of they sort of capture them and 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 carry the couple away. You really wish, most of all, that you could impress upon them uh, what a holy thing this is. But I speak in Christ and in the Church, as Saint Paul says to the Ephesians. You have to this. Actually, we have a, uh, a caller now, uh, John, on the line, oh. who's uh, got a question about something we were talking about earlier, to do with difficulties oh, in marriage and and uh, when marriages go wrong. I think. John, you, yes. you're online on air now, so... Oh, thank you very much. Please, 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 far away. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, your having this this program this afternoon, Your Excellency and Stephen and this gentleman from England. And uh, I guess I was commenting that um, the, the difficulty, one of the problems that adults face is that um, they've been in a marriage from the Novus Ordo. And one of the partners has split off, and they've gotten this, you know, bogus church annulment, and they I think everything is fine with the world, and so they run mm-hmm. off, they get married, and then they have a great time while, you know, their partner's sort of left <laughs> sort of sad and lonely because they sure. have found tradition, but they realize their position in the church. So I was just asking, um, maybe it's a question, maybe it's a comment, but um, what do you do? I mean... You can't obviously find yourself in a social situation with other singles, especially if they're traditional Catholics, because unfortunately, and I'll be brutally honest with you, but they're so quick to yell scandal that they're thinking that you're a married person after uh, love, and you're not. You're just there for socialism. Um, Then at the same time, you are not able to go to the religious life because, you know, there's not a traditional religious formation that will accept you. So it's difficult. It's uh, You don't want to lock yourself in the closet in the, in, uh, in, uh, on, on Valentine's Day, St. Valentine's Day, <laughs> unfortunately. Right. But, uh, yeah. but you know, um, what, do you, what do you suggest to a person who's in that situation? <laughs> well, and if you want uh, me to, I'll get off the phone and listen uh, so someone else okay. can call in or, if, or I can listen just as it is. Whatever Which Stephen would like. All right, John. We'll, 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 yeah, we'll, uh, we'll you listen to the answer off air. Thanks for your question. Thank you very much. So um, I think that I mentioned earlier the importance of some uh, some sense of how 
are really sublimely sacred is the married state, the sacrament of, of, of matrimony, the vows. Um, and if that's the case in general, and it is, then even more so it has to be taken to a, another level it, by means of the of the sacramental grace, especially grace that's attached to the sacrament of matrimony, to which enable a couple to be faithful to their vocation and to, to their married state, to their vows. And so, for as we say in the English, uh, for better or for worse, till death do us part. To, to live that in the face of uh, abandonment and loneliness and all these, you know, very real human issues, that's extremely difficult. But that's what I mean with the sense of spirituality. We priests have a preparation for it. You know, you get clobbered regularly in the seminary, and it's a lonely life, and and uh, you get some taste already of the sacrifices which you will have to make, and you have all the means of meditation, prayer, a spiritual life, the sacraments, um, a spiritual director, an experienced priest who assists you in dealing with your your spiritual growth and also overcoming your spiritual crises. What do our What do our married couples have? Nothing at all. You know, when there's a we priests always say amongst ourselves when there's a marriage problem, they make up their mind what they're going to do before they come and talk to you as a general rule. Except if every now and again it's just so that you can listen to the argument, I think. But usually it's they've already decided, I'm going to get divorced, I'm going to leave the bum. Um, and it's that's a heartbreak for the priest, but the priest doesn't have to live in that state. It's a heartbreak for the person who is left, for the one who's left not holding the bag, but holding the vows in the sight of God. So I think John's point is a good one. What's the answer? The answer is to build up one's spiritual life and to take a leaf from the book of those who are single in this world. That is to say, you cannot sanctify yourself and you cannot achieve happiness in this life unless, forgetful of yourself, you seek to do good for others. That is to say, to God the worship of God, prayer, a good spiritual life, and also for God in serving your neighbor. Uh, and, that, and after all, that's the essence of marriage, too. It's this idea of an unselfish, self-forgetful love. The, the joy comes in giving, not in receiving. Well, uh, someone who, is, uh, uh, who suffers from, in effect, abandonment of one's spouse uh, and, and this false imprimatur or blessing that's given by the Novus Ordo Church's uh, annulments, has to really develop that. So I would recommend having a spiritual director. I would recommend looking into the possibility of the third order. There's a good traditional Franciscan, Father Miller, and he has his third order of St. Francis, a very serious and spiritual affair. And I do know that there are third order Dominican chapters available. Then there are priests who are available to give spiritual direction. And in the context of spiritual direction, a good spiritual life, there's a tremendous amount of good that can be done in the way of volunteering or helping others, everything from teaching catechism to chauffeuring priests to cleaning the floor to visiting the sick. There's an, uh, singing in the choir, serving. There's an awful lot of good that can be done. But you have to avoid the temptation to stay in the in front of the fireplace with the cat in your lap because even though it's cozy for a while eventually you feel the emptiness of that so this is a call to sanctity uh, when the shadow of the cross is cast over someone's life and you either are going to be holier as a result of that or else you will go unfortunately in the opposite direction but you can't uh, 
you know the the way of out sinning a sinner sort of that's never that's that's never going to work um I think we just had her feast day the other day that reminds me of uh, if I'm thinking of the correct saint Catherine Ricci, who is a great saint of the uh third order Dominicans if I'm not mistaken who is also a great saint of devotion to purgatory. Well, this particular woman, whoever it is who I'm thinking of, was married by her parents to a very frivolous, uh, worldly, and unfaithful young man. And she was depressed for a number of years. And at a certain point in her despair, she decided to join him at his own game, and she became extremely worldly, too. And that was even worse than just being depressed and staying at home. And then she finally converted herself, which is what you always have to do at the end of the day, but maybe don't wait till the end. Convert yourself, be holy. And uh, then she and her husband eventually got back together again, and they both of them managed a hospital and uh, lived a chaste life together and honored God beautifully in taking care of the sick. Something along those lines is what you have to do. It's just forgetfulness of self. Um, and the finding of your happiness, just as a husband or a wife would find his happiness in taking care of the spouse and the children, so too now in a different sense you find your happiness, but it's always in the giving of yourself to others. And it's never in never in worrying about yourself. It's always in self-forgetfulness. Those are easy words for a priest to say, you know, when he's in the preaching mode, but the priest has to live it too, and the priest has to be reminded of that too. It's a, it's a call for for all of us. It's a call of love, the Sacred Heart, and uh, each one of us following his own vocation as, as God sent it to us. It's interesting to hear you say that, Your Excellency. Uh, one of the questions, going back a little way in the conversation, we were talking about was difficulties in marriage, and of course this has come up with John's question. Hi. Um, I mean, we started with the premise of love, uh, Saint Valentine's Day being you know the day of love, courtship, and so on. Um, and I was thinking recently, and you, you may know in England there was a vote on, on a bill to, to introduce um, homosexual marriage in the UK, ah, yes, which was passed, incidentally. And I remember being engaged in a, in a conversation with people about this. And it seemed to me that even the supporters, rather, of the movement against signing the bill, people who were against um, homosexual marriages, in other words, were missing the point because they had a wrong idea about what marriage is. They only yeah. emphasised love that kind of personal pleasure one takes in somebody else, mm-hmm. which is exactly where you know the, the arguments for divorce come in. I don't really fancy or love this person anymore, therefore I shouldn't stay with them. But the That's idea right, of exactly. marriage really being about forming a family, uh, raising children, um, forming a social unit, all of these things go by the way, and they are very by difficult. The way. You're right. I mean, extraordinarily difficult. But marriage itself is misunderstood to such a degree that, that something like homosexual marriage seems perfectly reasonable to even people who call themselves Catholics now. Many of the sure. people who voted for the bill are nominal Catholics. Yes, it's all predicated. Right, yeah. I think it's all predicated upon, I have a, number one, I have a right to, I have an absolute right to do what I want to do when I want to do it with whomever I choose to do it. And secondly, this concept of love, uh, which is the... Uh, exact opposite of Aristotle's definition of love. It's no longer the desire to do good to the one whom I love. It is rather the desire to receive good from the one whom I choose <laughs> for as long as I choose. It, you know, regardless of, as I say, bestiality probably will be following the suit, and I shouldn't be surprised. So 
So, if, you know, if it's the cow or the cat or the horse or someone of the same sex, it doesn't matter. I have a, I have a right to this and this is what I want and this is my definition of love. But those are two horrible perversions of nature and of the way Almighty God created us and incidentally as well of any possibility of happiness for the people who are de- who are deceived by these false principles so that's why we catholics have to reclaim saint valentine's day and the idea of a sane and sacred uh reading of what love is and as you say to get back to the very, the very definition of what marriage itself is you know this idea of a, of a woman wailing for example and saying but i don't love him anymore well, what, what what is love? How do you define love? Uh, it's this, this this desire that God gives me as part of a call, a vocation, to 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 want the good of the one whom I love in in a, in a, in a married context. That is, that's what love is, and that's then that's consecrated by a sacrament, and it endures. Love, well, didn't Saint Paul just tell us on Sunday? Love never falls away. Charity never falls away. It's always there. And the good example of what St. Paul was writing about is the sacrament of matrimony. Thank you. Uh, it puts it very well in perspective, I think. Good. Well, Your Excellency, I, you know, I think you talked about the fact that we have to incorporate our public Catholic lives with our private Catholic lives. Um, yeah. Bishop Williamson refers to it as incorporating the upstairs with the downstairs. Yeah, right. That there's, yeah. it isn't. It isn't British just something up there, right? It isn't just something up there. It's something down here. It's very visceral. And you know, it, someone had someone had said, you know, why don't you invite colleagues and friends to a confirmation? You know, why not? Why only invite Catholics to that? That that's that sort of outreach. I'm thinking in the modern workplace, St. Valentine's Day may not necessarily be the um, the holiday of outreach, um, mm-hmm. partially because, and at least in America, we have all sorts of human resources uh, <laughs> obligations. But I think the show has been very informative for anyone who, you know, if they're at work or they were having a discussion about Valentine's Day, they can say, well, actually, it's St. Valentine's Day, and the reason why, you know, this entire holiday exists comes from, you know, a Catholic a Catholic uh, priest originally. Named, and they can tell a little bit about the story. And named for a Catholic priest because it, it somehow got its impetus on his on his feast day, and then they could say, well, that's the importance of the saints in the Catholic calendar, isn't it? That even the whole world recognizes, although the Novus Ordo Church doesn't, it, and isn't that a story in and of itself? The Novus Ordo Church doesn't recognize it. I read in Wikipedia that the Lutherans and the Anglicans have some sort of a commemoration of St. Valentine on their calendar today. But once again, the Novus Ordo does not have it. Uh, they've, they've, they've cut that possible link to relevance right out. Um, and it's so Catholic, or so Christian, this concept, even in its debased, very paganized form, that you know a few years ago there was a big to-do in Saudi Arabia, America's good, strong allies, who don't allow anything of Christianity in the Arabian Peninsula because it's sacred, don't you know? Um, mm. That uh, they forbade the selling of St. Valentine's Day cards or even Valentine's Day cards, something quite secular, because they rightly saw it as Christian, as a Western Christian influence, and they weren't having any of it. Thank you very much. 
So that mm. would be something for the religious police to come and, and confiscate and maybe, you know, chop off somebody's finger or something like that, something congenial like that, it, because it's too Christian, it's too Christian for me. So it's, I think it's our challenge for our, our Catholics today to, well, you know, it goes back to what St. Paul said, doesn't it? Be ready to give a reason for the faith that is in you. Have your fingertip apologetics. Know your saints. Know your Catholic culture. Know why. We're, we're going to insist on the saint in front of it. Mm. I would say that's a, an important concept. One of the last things that I want to talk about today, Eric, since we're coming close to the end of our show, I had asked earlier about the fact that today, because of isolated circumstances, you know, you had to be a bishop where you thought that might not have normally been your your path of life, but that's what our Lord has revealed to you. And so someone who may have very well uh, found someone at their parish, gotten married, and, and, and had children by now, maybe they didn't because of our reduced circumstances. So in addition to prayer, which is what every every person needs to engage in with our Lord in order to figure help to figure this out, do you, do you see there is any certain signs that someone might definitely be called to the single life or definitely be called to the married life? Outside of, obviously, as, as, as Pierre suggested, giving the religious vocation the first shot to see if, if that makes any sense. That's, that, that, that's a sign of a noble Catholic soul, a noble and mature Catholic soul, which is very rare, a holy Catholic soul like oh, the, fa- the, the father of St. Therese of this year, the, uh, Mr. Martin, how he tried to um, join the canons of the great St. Bernard. I guess he was okay for the skiing part, but they say he couldn't learn the Latin. And so that's how, that's how because he couldn't do the Latin, that's how he realized he didn't have a vocation. Uh, and then, But what a beautiful vocation was his that he did have from God uh, to be the father of all those nuns and to be father of a saint. Um, so it's, it's knowing, you know, domine, the, the prayer of St. Augustine, Domine Jesu Novarum Me Novarum Te. That's, that's, that's a, almost a strikingly modern opening for a prayer from, from St. Augustine himself. But, O oh Lord Jesus, may I know myself, may I know Thee. Uh, to, to know yourself, to know what your, your talents might be, what, what you feel drawn towards. But I think for everybody, it has to start with a good, solid spiritual life and uh, an understanding of the principles that are involved, and indeed the practice of prayer, where, where one asks God, not only in, you don't just recite formulae, but you actually ask God to show you his will. And then, then that openness to God's will and the, uh, the willingness to seek the advice of others, your parents, those whom you respect, as well as a priest, to, 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 to discover what the will of God might be. I guess you could say, in a, in a sense, as, as I mentioned earlier, there is there is one absolute. If um, if a bishop doesn't call a man to orders, he doesn't have a vocation to the priesthood. And if he doesn't, and, the, and if a man can't find a, a woman to marry, well, he doesn't have a vocation to be married. And if uh, and then uh, then in that case, he would have a vocation to the single state, in all probability, unless it be perhaps to the priesthood. But you have to start off with a strong Catholic spiritual life and some Catholic understanding of the terms and this whole willingness to, well, to sacrifice and to be sacrificed. It's not just for the priesthood. It's for everybody. And it's, it's especially, as I say, it's especially the married state. Oh, it's especially the married state. And um, 
uh, those those would be some ways. And then it's just, you know, like the Martins, Mr. and Mrs. Martin, met each other on a bridge. You know, who knows? It's, it's a bit of whimsy that I, I can think of different different ways, different couples that I know uh, have uh, have met each other over the years. And uh, it, it's, it's seemingly whimsy, but on the other hand, it's the it's God's will. It's the divine providence. But there has to be that, that foundation that we speak about, a good Catholic spiritual life and a good Catholic understanding of the terms and a Catholic willingness to... Um, you miss, Somebody mentioned earlier in a question about... Like like one of the oh you mentioned it Stephen and the idea of like a frustration possibly in preparing couples for marriage this wouldn't come in preparing couples for marriage but it's um, oh it's endemic to our fallen human nature that is to and you see it a lot in marriage counseling because when couples are in love with with each other uh, so called love you know in quotation marks it's it's not going to come up but later on it will that is to say. This idea that you never stop loving, that love does not draw a line, that I'm willing to to give myself in sacrifice for you because I desire your good, that that concept of utter selflessness embodied by by the saints and embodied by many holy married people is just gone today because so many children probably have been raised to be very very selfish. Um, and the parents don't mean to do it, of course, but they've actually done a very bad job. Uh, and uh, unless those things get straightened out, I can't see anything else really get get straightened out. But um, those are those are the deep spiritual truths that, that that really have to inform us when we're talking about any of the, any of these questions of vocation. Mm. Well, for those of you who are just joining us, you are at the end of our show. Not to worry, uh, when our show wraps, you'll be able to download the whole show and listen from the beginning. Um, this is Restoration Radio. I'm one of your hosts today, Stephen Heiner of TrueRestoration.blogspot.com. I'm joined with Dr. Piers. I'm joined by Dr. Piers Hugill um, and His Excellency Bishop Daniel Dolan. And you, I want everyone to keep in mind. I think a lot of times. And this is tied up to modern manners and the fact that we have a lack of decorum, but people forget to send thank you notes. People forget to send uh, notes of thanks. Um, I think anyone listening to the show who's appreciated an hour and a half of a bishop's time should maybe send a valentine to His Excellency. Uh, and and if, if, I, uh, if I may point out, Stephen, that green valentines are equally received as red valentines. Yes, green can, valentines can, in any can, denomination. <laughs> <laughs> or, or if you are if you are in the European Union, uh, all of the colorful valentines. All of the colorful. Are also, that's right. That's all <laughs> accepted. Are also um, very so, faithfully accepted. <laughs> so, for those of you who are old-fashioned um, and would like to send. Uh, a Valentine with some Valentines to His Excellency. Um, the address is 4900 Rialto Road. That's 4900 Rialto, R I A L T O Road, um, West Chester, Ohio, 45069. Again, that's 4900 Rialto Road. Westchester, Ohio, 45069. If you're not able to send some green valentines, I would encourage you to at least send a note of thanks. And uh, if you're not old-fashioned and you don't want to send a card, feel free to email His Excellency as well at bpdolan at sgg.org and thank him for his time with us today. Um, Thank you, Your Excellency, for giving us a better notion of St. Valentine's Day, a a proper understanding of 
how we as Catholics should celebrate it and promote it, and also for discussing some of the challenges that modern singles and married Catholics face today. You're certainly welcome, Stephen. It's always a pleasure to be on the show and to be able to start talking. <laughs> We'll uh, we'll close out with the same music that we started with, which is uh, a Kyrie from Mozart's uh, Mass in C minor. Very good. God bless you all. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.